Chapter 3, Part 2 of the Fifteen Decisive Battles of the World. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dave Gillespie, Ashland, Kentucky. The Fifteen Decisive Battles of the World by Sir Edwin Shepherd Creasy. Chapter 3, Part 2 The Battle of Arbela. Alexander's victory at Arbela not only overthrew an oriental dynasty, but established European rulers in its stead. It broke the monotony of the eastern world by the impression of western energy and superior civilization. Even as England's present mission is to break up the mental and moral stagnation of India and Cathay by pouring upon and through them the impulsive current of Anglo-Saxon commerce and conquest. Arbila, the city which has furnished its name to the decisive battle that gave Asia to Alexander, lies more than twenty miles from the actual scene of conflict. The little village, then named Gogamila, is close to the spot where the armies met, but has ceded the honor of naming the battle to its more euphonious neighbor. Gogamila is situate in one of the wide plains that lie between the Tigris and the mountains of Kurdistan. A few undulating hillocks diversify the surface of this sandy track, but the ground is generally level and admirably qualified for the evolutions of cavalry and also calculated to give the larger of two armies the full advantage of numerical superiority. The Persian king, who before he came to the throne had proved his personal valor as a soldier and his skill as a general, had wisely selected this region for the third and decisive encounter between his forces and the invaders. The previous defeats of his troops, however severe they had been, were not looked on as irreparable. The Granicus had been fought by his generals rashly and without mutual concert, and, though Darius himself had commanded and been beaten at Issus, that defeat might be attributed to the disadvantageous nature of the ground, where, cooped up between the mountains, the river, and the sea, the numbers of the Persians confused and clogged alike the general's skill and the soldier's prowess, so that their very strength became their weakness. Here, on the broad plains of Kurdistan, there was scope for Asia's largest host to array its lines, to wheel, to skirmish, to condense or expand its squadrons, to maneuver, and to charge at will. Should Alexander and his scanty band dare to plunge into that living sea of war, their destruction seemed inevitable. Darius felt, however, the critical nature to himself, as well as to his adversary, of the coming encounter. He could not hope to retrieve the consequences of a third overthrow. The great cities of Mesopotamia and Upper Asia, the central provinces of the Persian Empire, were certain to be at the mercy of the victor. Darius knew also the Asiatic character well enough to be aware how it yields to the prestige of success and the apparent career of destiny. He felt that the diadem was now either to be firmly replaced on his own brow or to be irrevocably transferred to the head of his European conqueror. He, therefore, during the long interval left him after the Battle of Isis, 
while Alexander was subjugating Syria and Egypt, assiduously busied himself in selecting the best troops which his vast empire supplied, and in training his varied forces to act together with some uniformity of discipline and system. The hardy mountaineers of Afghanistan, Bokhara, Kiva, and Tibet were then, as at present, far different from the generality of Asiatics in warlike spirit and endurance. From these districts, Darius collected large bodies of admirable infantry, and the countries of the modern Kurds and Turkomans supplied, as they do now, squadrons of horsemen, strong, skillful, bold, and trained to a life of constant activity and warfare. It is not uninteresting to notice that the ancestors of our own late enemies, the Sikhs, served as allies of Darius against the Macedonians. They are spoken of in Aryan as Indians who dwelt near Bactria. They were attached to the troops of that satrapy, and their cavalry was one of the most formidable forces in the whole Persian army. Besides these picked troops, contingents also came in from the numerous other provinces that yet obeyed the great king. Altogether, the horse are said to have been 40,000, the scythe-bearing chariots 200, and the armed elephants fifteen in number. The amount of the infantry is uncertain, but the knowledge which both ancient and modern times supply of the usual character of Oriental armies and of their populations of camp followers may warrant us in believing that many myriads were prepared to fight or to encumber those who fought for the last Darius. The position of the Persian king near Mesopotamia was chosen with great military skill. It was certain that Alexander, on his return from Egypt, must march northward along the Syrian coast before he attacked the central provinces of the Persian Empire. A direct eastward march from the lower part of Palestine across the great Syrian desert was then, as now, utterly impracticable. Marching eastward from Syria, Alexander would, on crossing the Euphrates, arrive at the vast Mesopotamian plains. The wealthy capitals of the empire, Babylon, Susa, and Persepolis, would then lie to his south, and if he marched down through Mesopotamia to attack them, Darius might reasonably hope to follow the Macedonians with his immense force of cavalry, and without even risking a pitched battle, to harass and finally overwhelm them. We may remember that three centuries afterwards, a Roman army under Crassus was thus actually destroyed by the Oriental archers and horsemen in these very plains, and that the ancestors of the Parthians, who thus vanquished the Roman legions, served by thousands under King Darius. If, on the contrary, Alexander should defer his march against Babylon and first seek an encounter with the Persian army, the country on each side of the Tigris in this latitude was highly advantageous for such an army as Darius commanded, and he had close in his rear the mountainous districts of northern Medea, where he himself had in early life been satrap, where he had acquired reputation as a soldier and a general, and where he justly expected to find loyalty to his person and a safe refuge in case of defeat. Mitford's remarks on the strategy of Darius in his last campaign are very just. After having been unduly admired as an historian, Mitford is now unduly neglected. 
his partiality and his deficiency in scholarship have been exposed sufficiently to make him no longer a dangerous guide as to greek polities while the clearness and brilliancy of his narrative and the strong common sense of his remarks where his party prejudices do not interfere must always make his volumes valuable as well as entertaining his great antagonist came on across the euphrates against him at the head of an army which arian copying from the journals of macedonian officers states to have consisted of forty thousand foot and seven thousand horse in studying the campaigns of alexander we possess the peculiar advantage of deriving our information from two of alexander's generals of division who bore an important part in all his enterprises aristobulus and ptolemy who afterward became king of egypt kept regular journals of the military events which they witnessed and these journals were in the possession of arian when he drew up his history of alexander's expedition the high character of arian for integrity makes us confident that he used them fairly and his comments on the occasional discrepancies between the two macedonian narratives prove that he used them sensibly he frequently quotes the very words of his authorities and his history thus acquires a charm such as very few ancient or modern military narratives possess the anecdotes and expressions which he records we fairly believe to be genuine and not to be the coinage of a rhetorician like those in Curtius. in fact in reading arian we read general aristobulus and general ptolemy on the campaigns of the macedonians and it is like reading general jomini or general foy on the campaigns of the french the estimate which we find in arian of the strength of alexander's army seems reasonable when we take into account both the losses which he had sustained and the reinforcements which he had received since he left europe indeed to englishmen who know with what mere handfuls of men our own generals have at Plassey, at assay at Mayani, and other indian battles routed large hosts of asiatics the disparity of numbers that we read of in the victories won by the macedonians over the persians presents nothing incredible the army which alexander now led was wholly composed of veteran troops in the highest possible state of equipment and discipline enthusiastically devoted to their leader and full of confidence in his military genius and his victorious destiny the celebrated macedonian phalanx formed the main strength of his infantry this force had been raised and organized by his father philip who on his accession to the macedonian throne needed a numerous and quickly formed army and who by lengthening the spear of the ordinary greek phalanx and increasing the depth of the files brought the tactic of armed masses to the greatest efficiency of which it was capable with such materials as he possessed he formed his men sixteen deep and placed in their grasp the sarissa as the macedonian pike was called which was four and twenty feet in length and when couched for action reached eighteen feet in front of the soldier so that as a space of about two feet was allowed between the ranks the spears of the five files behind him projected in advance of each front-rank man the phalangite soldier was fully equipped in the defensive armor of the regular greek infantry 
and thus the phalanx presented a ponderous and bristling mass which as long as its order was kept compact were sure to bear down all opposition the defects of such an organization are obvious and were proved in after years when the macedonians were opposed to the roman legions but it is clear that under alexander the phalanx was not the cumbrous unwieldy body which it was at cynocephaly and pydney his men were veterans and he could obtain from them an accuracy of movement and steadiness of evolution such as probably the recruits of his father would only have floundered in attempting and such as certainly were impracticable in the phalanx when handled by his successors especially as under them it ceased to be a standing force and became only a militia under alexander the phalanx consisted of an aggregate of eighteen thousand men who were divided into six brigades of three thousand each these were again subdivided into regiments and companies and the men were carefully trained to wheel to face about to take more ground or to close up as the emergencies of the battle required alexander also arrayed in the intervals of the regiments of his phalangites troops armed in a different manner which could prevent their line from being pierced and their companies taken in flank when the nature of the ground prevented a close formation and which could be withdrawn when a favorable opportunity arrived for closing up the phalanx or any of its brigades for a charge or when it was necessary to prepare to receive cavalry besides the phalanx alexander had a considerable force of infantry who were called shield-bearers they were not so heavily armed as the phalangites or as was the case with the greek regular infantry in general but they were equipped for close fight as well as for skirmishing and were far superior to the ordinary irregular troops of greek warfare they were about six thousand strong besides these he had several bodies of greek regular infantry and he had archers slingers and javelin men who fought also with broadsword and target these were principally supplied to him by the highlanders of illyria and thracia the main strength of his cavalry consisted in two chosen corps of cuirassiers one macedonian and one thessalian each of which was about fifteen hundred strong they were provided with long lances and heavy swords and horse as well as man was fully equipped with defensive armor other regiments of regular cavalry were less heavily armed and there were several bodies of light horsemen whom alexander's conquests in egypt and syria had enabled him to mount superbly a little before the end of august alexander crossed the euphrates at thrapsicus a small corps of persian cavalry under mazaeus retiring before him alexander was too prudent to march down through the mesopotamian deserts and continued to advance eastward with the intention of passing the tigris and then if he was unable to find darius and bring him to action of marching southward on the left side of that river along the skirts of a mountainous district where his men would suffer less from heat and thirst and where provisions would be more abundant darius finding that his adversary was not to be enticed into the march through mesopotamia against his capital determined to remain on the battleground which he had chosen on the left of the tigris where 
if his enemy met a defeat or a check, the destruction of the invaders would be certain with two such rivers as the Euphrates and the Tigris in their rear. The Persian king availed himself to the utmost of every advantage in his power. He caused a large space of ground to be carefully leveled for the operation of his scythe-armed chariots, and he deposited his military stores in the strong town of Arbela, about twenty miles in his rear. The rhetoricians of after-ages have loved to describe Darius Cotamanus as a second Xerxes in ostentation and imbecility, but a fair examination of his generalship in this his last campaign shows that he was worthy of bearing the same name as his great predecessor, the royal son of Histaspes. On learning that Darius was with a large army on the left of the Tigris, Alexander hurried forward and crossed that river without opposition. He was at first unable to procure any certain intelligence of the precise position of the enemy, and after giving his army a short interval of rest, he marched for four days down the left bank of the river. A moralist may pause upon the fact that Alexander must in this march have passed within a few miles of the remains of Nineveh, the great city of the primeval conquerors of the human race. Neither the Macedonian king nor any of his followers knew what those vast mounds had once been. They had already become nameless masses of grass-grown ruins, and it is only within the last few years that the intellectual energy of one of our own countrymen has rescued Nineveh from its long centuries of oblivion. On the fourth day of Alexander's southward march, his advanced guard reported that a body of the enemy's cavalry was in sight. He instantly formed his army in order for battle, and directing them to advance steadily, he rode forward at the head of some squadrons of cavalry and charged the Persian horse whom he found before him. This was a mere reconnoitering party, and they broke and fled immediately. But the Macedonians made some prisoners, and from them Alexander found that Darius was posted only a few miles off, and learned the strength of the army that he had with him. On receiving this news, Alexander halted and gave his men repose for four days, so that they should go into action fresh and vigorous. He also fortified his camp and deposited in it all his military stores and all his sick and disabled soldiers, intending to advance upon the enemy with the serviceable part of his army perfectly unencumbered. After this halt, he moved forward, while it was yet dark, with the intention of reaching the enemy and attacking them at break of day. About halfway between the camps, there was some undulations of the ground which concealed the two armies from each other's view. But, on Alexander arriving at their summit, he saw by the early light the Persian host arrayed before him, and he probably also observed traces of some engineering operations having been carried on along part of the ground in front of them. Not knowing that these marks had been caused by the Persians having leveled the ground for the free use of their war chariots, Alexander suspected that hidden pitfalls had been prepared with a view of disordering the approach of his cavalry. He summoned a council of war forthwith. Some of the officers were for attacking instantly at all hazards, but the more prudent opinion of Parmenio prevailed, 
and it was determined not to advance farther till the battleground had been carefully surveyed. End of chapter 3, part 2